swinging at the plate. Say hey, say who, say Willie. That giant kid is great. When he hits the ball, it's long gone man. Hits it farther than camp began. Swings the bat like a little lead pipe. When they reach the ball, it's overripe. Say hey. And that's the man we're going to be talking about for the next uh, few minutes, Willie Mays, the Say Hey Kid. And uh, Doug Miles, Don Henderson, back with you here on Sports Talk. And a great new book uh, just came out uh, about a month ago uh, called uh, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid, written uh, with Willie Mays and uh, author who joined us right now. He's been with the San Francisco Chronicle covering baseball for a long time, John Shea. And uh, Don, uh, great to welcome John to the show today. Well, it certainly is. Uh, John, welcome to the show, number one. And number two, I don't know if you go back quite as far as I do. I saw Willie play with the Trenton Giants when he first signed the pro contract. And, of course, when he went to Indianapolis, he only stayed there for about two and a half weeks. And he was with the big club at the Polar Grounds. But a long, long time with Willie Mays, a great, great player. And very interesting talking to you because I said a little bit ago, we chatted before you came on, you made this into 24 segments matching his number, which I thought was very interesting. How'd you go about that? Hey, forget me. I want to hear more about the Trenton Giants. You, you actually, <laughs> you, man, that's incredible. That's great. He, he, he loves talking about that team, uh, that how, how they took him in and, you know, kind of took care of him. It was an all-white league. And that's was, exactly right. Willie Mays coming out of the, the Negro Leagues, Leagues and uh, the Giants sign him and, and send him to Trenton, and he's the only minority not only on his team but the whole league. And he said a lot of these guys looked out for him and uh, has some good stories about him. But, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's pretty cool. But, uh, sorry, there, there's a guy on that team, second baseman, Harry Ace Bell. Uh, right. Who, who, who coached uh, Mike Sosha back in high school. And when Willie went to Presidential Medal of Freedom, he asked Ace Bell to, to come with him because Ace lives out there in New Jersey. And so Ace accompanied him to the White House. They haven't seen each other in decades, but he reached out to Ace. And uh, he must have liked him back then, but uh, I'm not sure how much they kept in contact. But there they were, posing with uh, President Obama at the White House together again all these years. John Shea joining us. And, and John, I happened to see uh, on YouTube, they've been putting up a lot of clips from, I remember the old Ed Sullivan show, and they put up one, uh, I believe yesterday, <laughs> they put up uh, Willie Mays on with Ed, uh, giving some batting tips, uh, as Ed would say, to the youngsters. So uh, Ed uh, liked to have sports figures on, and, and Willie was on. I guess this was from 1966. Did you Have you had a chance to see that? I sure did, and, and I uh, I texted the, uh, the two fellows who helped me the most with the book uh, on the editorial side and the on the photography side, and I said, hey, Ed, Ed Sullivan scooped us with all these life lessons. <laughs> that was good stuff. You know, all those years later, we, you know, we, we came out with a book, uh, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid, but that was pretty good. Willie talking about batting tips, but also, you know, helping kids and doing the right thing in life, and yeah. uh, there's Ed Sullivan. I saw a lot of pictures, but that was the first time I ever saw video. It's pretty good. That's what, you know, that's what the book's about. It's, uh, it, it's Willie Mays. Uh, it, it's his life. It's his, it's his story. It's his career. But, you know, but more than that, you know, he he took the right road and in, in a lot of ways that maybe others others didn't. He came from an improvised in, environment that uh, he overcame and, uh, uh, you know, the, the deep south and uh, segregated uh, Birmingham. And, uh, you know, he just made the best of it at every turn and wouldn't let the bigots win and, uh, you know, never, never quit, kept kept pushing and overcame so much in his life and his career 
to become the person he became. And now it's, it, it was a thrill to, to work with Willie and uh, present this book. Well, John, not the easiest thing in the world to have a long, that, that amount of time to put together a 24 segment, uh, <laughs> uh, life story on Willie, but did you go back far enough to, or did he go back far enough to talk about his stickball days when he was playing at the polar grounds and he'd be on his way home after a game and he'd play stickball with the kids. Did he talk about that at all? Yeah, he sure did. He went into depth about that. In fact, it's the final chapter. It's the fan tribute chapter in which he really uh, calls attention to the to the kids out there. And that was, you know, the prime example. Here's the great Willie Mays, 51 Rookie of the Year, 54 MVP. And before he walks over to the polo grounds, just a hop, skip, and a jump from his apartment, he's out in the streets playing stickball with the kids in Harlem. And it's just fantastic photography, uh, great images of the day, but more than that, the storytelling that Willie provides is just unparalleled. How, you know, he was, you know, he, he's got the Say Hey Foundation now that, you know, he works with kids uh, to this day. And it always, it always was a big part of his life. But uh, yeah, indeed, there's a whole chapter on on uh, on him, you know, hanging out. And he said, you know, and I never knew this, but he said when he grew up in the South, uh, they called it stickball in New York. He said, well, now what's that? He said, well, we get a stick, we get a ball, we hit it. Said, well, man, we called that mop ball. You know, we got a mop and, you know, we cut off your, the mop that in the, in the hall and, and then get some kind of ball and hit it. That Yeah, we played that. So it was a different version. Yeah, we, played, we played it on Long Island uh, a little differently. You went up to a schoolyard, you painted a strike box, and you could play with two guys that way. I don't know if you guys did that out where you grew up, John. I know, Don, you knew what that was about, but that was kind of a Long Island way of playing stickball. <laughs> oh, yeah, like wiffle balls or tennis balls, anything right. that would uh, yeah, a strike, strike zone. If you could curve it, yeah, you could hit the guy, but uh, but but if it curves over it and, and, and gets into that box, it's still a strike. Yeah, we, yeah we, Willie, uh, <laughs> I, I guess I guess back then, and you know better than I, but it was like neighborhoods versus neighborhoods. And right. If you were one of the good stickball players on your block, you were something, man. And, and uh, you know, these were heated battles, but um, because of the lack of fields around, you know, the region, uh, they took their ball plan to the streets. It's pretty impressive. Well, John, I know he had to have said a great deal about Leo DeRocher because when he first came up, uh, he got off to a really shaky start. And Leo just pulled him aside and said, look, you're my center fielder. You're going to play. And that sort of turned the corner from Willie on his, uh, his very first couple of weeks in the major leagues. Yeah. And Willie, you know, after he left Trenton, he had a great year. That was the Interstate Feed League. And that's right out of high school. And then the following year, it opens up in Minneapolis. Now, that was a little easier for Willie because it was an integrated team, an integrated league, and he just enjoyed it. And the fans loved him there. He was hitting 477 at the end of May. And he was thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to stay here all year. And Leo calls him up and says, Willie, we need you. And he said, what do you mean? I'm fine here. You don't need me. And, <laughs> said, you know, we're scuffling. I mean, they were several games under 500 and kind of in a little rut. And Leo wanted him all along. It was Horace Stoneham who said, hey, you know, we're going to go easy on this kid. You know, he's, he's at the time, he was only 19 years old in spring training. But Leo wanted him right away. So finally, Leo talked Horace Stoneham, the owner, into uh, bringing him up in late May. And he went from hitting 477 to scuffling with the New York Giants, uh, you know, 0 for 12, 1 for 25. And Warren Spahn, you know, gave up the only hit. A home run at the polo grounds over the left field roof and uh and one 
that is Locker crying and Leo sees him and you know Leo was just meant you know meant everything to him like a second father just a perfect guy for Willie at the time never hollered at him never uh embarrassed him never did any of that let Willie be Willie but one for 25 he's crying at his locker and Leo comes up to him and says what's wrong man and and Willie as he says in the book he says this is too fast for me you know it wasn't but here's young Willie overwhelmed for just a couple of weeks and and Leo says, listen, you know, you don't got a hit on this team. We just need you to do what you're doing out there in center field, catching everything that's out there, protecting our uh, team, protecting and our, our pitching staff. And, you know, and from then, from that point on, he started hitting. And, you know, 660 home runs later, he's in the Hall of Fame. But it was Leo looking back. And Willie had a bunch of managers, but Leo was his guy from day right. one. And right. uh, there was no, there was anyone, you know, he had Alvin Dark, he had, uh, uh, Herman Franks, uh, uh, you know, a lot of others, uh, Charlie Fox, but but nobody really compared to the first, Leo DeRocher. No, you... Didn't Herman Franks, uh, I think I read somewhere, maybe maybe you had it in your book as well, I didn't get to that chapter, but didn't Herman Franks kind of set Willie up uh, financially? Because uh, Herman Franks was a very successful, successful businessman, wasn't he? You're exactly right, he did. Uh, in the late 60s when Herman managed the team, and by the way, they finished second five years in a row in the right. late 60s. They were the a great team, but there were so many teams that were good, you know, from the Cardinals to the Dodgers. Even the Cubs had all these Hall of Famers, and, you know, they didn't win anything. But, yeah, Herman Franks set him up financially because he was great in investments. He kind of took Willie in. And right about that time, he bought the home that he still lives in, in the Bay Area. Pretty nice pad. And, you know, Herman kind of steered him the right way and, you know, for that reason and the baseball side, he looked up to Herman uh, as well. And Herman was a coach back in New York and Elvin Dark was his teammate back in New York. So it seemed like uh, his favorite managers had something to do with that initial New York Giants team. Well, you mentioned Charlie Fox and Charlie, he had a lot of managerial jobs and a lot of jobs around the league as a scout and so forth. Wonderful guy, but he was a tough guy. I mean, you played for him. He had a really rigid set of rules. Yeah, and you know what? You know what's a, a, a great stat? Willie Mays, from 1954, the year he came out of the Army and won the MVP and made the catch at the Polo Grounds, till the day he retired with the 73 Mets, the Dodgers had one manager, Walter Alston. Right. Meanwhile, the Giants had just a conga line of managers. A lot of them were kind of drinking buddies of Horace Stoneham. And, uh, and they, you know, they weren't the best managers of all time, and maybe <laughs> – you know, for that reason, that was, I mean, the Giants had the best record in the 60s, and Juan Marichal had the best, had the most wins in, in the 60s of any pitcher. I mean, they were a great team, but they just didn't win any World Series for whatever reason. They, you know, some bad luck, some, some you know, whatever happened along the way. And El, in fact, Orlando Cepeda uh, blamed some of it on Alvin Dark. Um, kind of, uh, uh, there were some race uh, relation problems right. back in the early 60s with the uh, uh, Lou brothers and Cepeda and Marichal and, and McCovey and, and Mays. And, you know, Alvin Dark, uh, uh, you know, steered a lot of guys wrong. But there's a great story in the book about how later in life he went up to each of these guys and apologized. I mean, he didn't even want the Spanish guys speaking Spanish. And the three Lou brothers were teammates. And what are they going to tell their dad, as Felipe told me, that they, they, this manager here, wouldn't even let us uh, talk Spanish in, in our own our, our own language in, in our clubhouse. So we, you know we, we we had to start speaking English once we left the parking lot and walked into the clubhouse. So it, it, it was it was tough. Uh, but Mays all seemed to be the peacekeeper and the uniter. You remember he was the guy who brought 
Johnny Roseboro off the field after Marshall clubbed him with the right, bat. The bat. Uh, yeah. Late in the giant Dodger uh, season, with big old rivalry. He did a weekend uh, the series, big exchange. And you, you look at the pictures, it was Mays who actually grabbed Roseboro and dragged him off to the uh, the other side of the field amid a you know a sea of Dodger blue. So you know every every chapter seems to have the same kind of theme where he's the uniter and the peacekeeper and the guy who tries to bring people together on the field and off. John Shea is our guest. Twenty four life stories and lessons from the Say Hey Kid is the uh, name of the book about, of course, Willie Mays. And you mentioned uh, Willie in the Army for uh, uh, missed about a season, maybe almost two seasons. You look at his stats: six hundred sixty home runs. If he doesn't have the Army duty, he probably beats Babe Ruth, right? No, you're exactly right. He was rookie of the year in fifty one, and May of fifty two, he gets called into the military and misses the rest of that season. He misses all of fifty three. Comes back in '54 and is the hottest ticket in town in you know New York with the three center fielders and the three teams. Uh, that was the center of the universe as far as baseball was concerned. But it was the great Mays who captured everybody's uh, hearts in the game and played the game with joyful exuberance. But uh, yeah, his first two years out of the Army, he hit 92 home runs. Wow! And uh, imagine if he just hit 60 in the years he missed in the military. Well, he finished with 660, add 60, and now you're at 720. That's more than the Babe. So you're right. It could have been Willie and not Hank who, who broke that record, who broke Babe's record. But oh. but Willie, he, when I over, I bring it up to him. He says, John, what's wrong with 660? And I right. say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's pretty good. He, he never felt bad. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't, he didn't feel bad about that. I mean, he that was his duty. He did it, right? So he, he didn't regret that. Oh, yeah for, yeah, for sure. And it wasn't like Jerry Coleman or Ted Williams who were in battle. I mean, it, it was Willie Mays and Whitey Ford and, and Johnny Antonelli and Don Newcomb. These guys played baseball in the military at the right. time. You know, why, you know, to, to boost the morale of the troops. And, you know, they were there for entertainment reasons and, and you know, darn proud of it. I mean, that was the role. And, uh, you know, they, they took it seriously. And Antonelli told me, in fact, uh, uh, he said he kind of used that for his minor leagues because he wasn't a big leaguer until he came out. And then right after he gets out, uh, he's traded to the Giants, and he's the best pitcher in the National League. Willie's the best hitter in the National League. They win the World Series. And Aunt Nelly asked, actually asked me, he said, maybe you could ask Willie, because I never knew the answer to this, that, that maybe it was Willie who recommended to, to, to management to, to trade for me, because I really went off when I, I, when I went to the Giants. He said, he just threw everything down the plate, and Willie would run it down at the polo grounds. But, but uh, Willie said, no, I didn't do anything. But, you know, everyone knew who, you know, how good he would be. And, uh, and, you know, he might have put in a good word, but he's not the one who swung that trade. But, yeah, so he, he came out of the military and, uh, uh, you know, the 92 home runs. But, yeah, it, it could have been it could have been Willie. It could have been Willie. But, he, you know, he, he never complained about that. John, I think one of the most interesting things about Willie is that we talk about the home runs and tremendous records that he was able to establish. But uh, night in and night out, as you watch baseball today, you keep saying, well, you know, why can't one of these power hitters finally decide he can hit the ball to right field or hit the ball to left field and do a little bit more damage rather than just trying to drive it through everybody? Willie made that transition all by himself because when he was in the four-way rounds, he wasn't necessarily a right center field hitter. No, and you couldn't be a dead center field hitter because it was 483 for Mo Blake. He was going to hit home runs to the center. And even the gaps were, you know, you couldn't even see the wall out there so far. And Willie wasn't a big pole hitter. 
Um, yeah, he's, he spread it out. In fact, he, he was told by Leo, he said, Hey, you know, use the whole field. Um, uh, you know, there was a year he was hitting a bunch of home runs at the all-star break and, and Leo pulled him aside and said, Hey, you know, ease off on the home runs, do more of everything. So he scored more, he ran more, he hit for a higher average. And, and, uh, and then he gets into Candlestick Park where you, you still can't pull the ball because the wind is going to drag it down. And that's when he really learned the power. Uh, you know, in terms of getting the ball out into the jet stream and right center, that's where the ball's going to fly. Right. And you look at Willie May's video, you know, young kids out there, and he doesn't pull the ball. He doesn't always, uh, you know, go through the five six hole. You see him hitting every which way, and it's, it's just, just not, not the standard, standard batting stance. You know, he lunges. You know, he's, he's so aggressive. Joe Torrey told me when comparing Hank Aaron with with Willie Mays, he said. You know, Hank would just get up there slowly, take a couple pitchers, and he said Willie Mays would just go up swinging. You know, he's like swinging before he's in the box. He's so aggressive, and he, he and that's probably why you know Mantle walked a lot more than Mays. You know, Willie wasn't the most patient hitter, but it, you know he, he he stepped in the bucket. He had an open stance. You know, he, he looked looked like like he was getting fooled by a pitch, and he'd take it to right field. It was just bizarre the the success he had, and he was only five ten. Uh, you know, that's what he is officially. And I used to write that all the time. I said, John, you, that's a good story, but you made a mistake. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm 5'11". I said, okay, Willie. And from that point on, I, <laughs> in the book, he's 5'11". If he thinks he's 5'11", then he's 5'11". But, uh, yeah, he did a lot, man. He, you know, he's the only uh, – there's only one other player in history in the 500 home run club, and that's Melot, who's shorter than Willie May. So he, you know, pound for pound, uh, in, in so many other ways, too, he's, he's the greatest. Yeah, but if Yankee Stadium was built for Bay Ruth, <laughs> the polo grounds was built <laughs> for Mel Ott. I mean, he, oh, yeah. All he had to do was hit the ball 265 feet and he went down the line with a home run. Yeah, you know, the the ball, you know, the poor Vic works, right? He hits it 450, 460 feet and right. really, you know, runs forever to track it down. But how is that game won? One. It was by Dusty Rhodes in the tenth inning, a little pop fly over the two hundred and fifty nine foot sign in right field. <laughs> so so it was like half the distance of Vic Wirtz's ball, but uh, he got the game winner in the tenth and they went up sweeping the Indians. It's not how you do it, it's when you do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you know what? Maybe maybe we wouldn't think so highly of Willie without the polo grounds. He would have never made that catch at any other stadium. Right. Uh, right. Detroit is the furthest center field. Uh, right now and you know add another 40 feet at 30 feet whatever it was and that's where Willie caught the ball so it, it was great he played there because we would not have seen that you know the most famous catch of all time if it was any other facility I can only remember two or three players that hit one out the center I think Joe Adcock was one exactly yeah uh, he, he no, took hey, it out hey, the center field. who are the other I don't remember the other two but I know there were two or three that did it well Hank Aaron did and uh, another one you'd, you'd be surprised uh, is Lou Brock, uh, oh, of wow. all people. Yeah, and uh, so it, it, I, you know, it's like three or four people ever did it in, in, right. in the game, and uh, you know, maybe batting practice. But but even Willie said he never took it out there in, in batting practice. But uh, uh, it's uh, I mean, it, we, <laughs> I, I just can't imagine um, playing in a playing in a ballpark that uh, the center field is just like a rumor. You don't even know it's there. It just goes on and on. 
But uh, and he he was prouder yeah, he, of he, the he mastered it defensively, if not offensively. I was gonna, he he was prouder. I mean, the catch obviously, but prouder of making the turn and throwing the ball back into second base. Yeah, and that that's that's the beauty of that play. And people refer to it as the catch, but in his mind, it was the throw because uh, because it was the eighth inning of game one, and Al Rosen was on first, and the great Larry Doby was on second. And Wirtz hit the ball a country mile. And uh, Willie, uh, you know, talking to him now, said he felt he had it all the way. And teammates talk about how, you know, he tapped his glove. And whenever he tapped his glove, you knew he was going to make the catch. But the whole six-and-a-half-second sequence from the time the ball hits the bat until Willie releases the ball, Willie is thinking, throw, throw, throw. I got to make sure nobody scores. So he makes this beautiful catch and turns and throws a strike to second base. Al Rosen has to retreat the first, and all Larry Doby could do is tag and go second to third. And Willie said in that ballpark, oftentimes he was able to score from second on a deep fly in the gap or dead center because it was just so far, and it was such a long throw. You needed one or two cutoff guys. But with Mays, he got it back so quickly, and he had such a good arm that the Indians did not score, and that preserved the 2-2 tie. And then again, Dusty Rhodes hits the walk-off home run. And and then, you know, it's the Indians team that won 111 games, the most ever uh, at the time, and 154-game season. Right. So that, that momentum uh, really carried the team because if he doesn't make that catch, suddenly the Giants are down a couple of runs. Maybe it's no question. They also had they also yeah. had one of the best pitching staffs in nineteen fifty four oh. ever put together. But the other point I'd like to ask you about, John, which you've seen so many games out there at the new ballpark. The, the design of the new ballpark was supposed to, in my mind, give the triple back to the game. Uh, you know, Polo Grounds, the triple was a big was a big part of the game because of the way the walls were situated. Not only the depth, but the way the walls were situated the ball would bounce and you had an excellent chance to get either an inside the park home run or a triple. And I, how about the design of the new ballpark? Does it still have that, that uh, ability? Well, it's funny you ask. It, it, it's always been 421 out to right center, and they nickname it Triple Valley because all you have to do is get it out there and you can keep running. And you a lot of stand-up triples at this place. But, but you know what? So this year it went from 421 to 415. They moved it in a bit. And they moved dead center from 399 to 391 because they moved the bullpen mounds from in foul territory to beyond the outfield wall. So uh, the fans can't see it because they're not allowed in. They can see it on TV. But uh, it's still triple valley. I mean, that's still a long way to go, 415. Uh, well, I think it's the there. greatest. I think it's the most oh. exciting player, one of the most exciting plays oh. in baseball. I, I, I love the opportunity to get the triple. And in today's ballparks, you don't see too many of them. No, you're right, especially with these tiny parks, uh, uh, symmetrical parks. Um, you don't see strange, uh, you know, maybe Fenway, um, you know, the Giants Park, uh, San Diego maybe. But but otherwise, um, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. And, you know, Willie Mays had a bunch of triples. Uh, you know, he liked to run. And uh, you, know, you, you hit it in the polo grounds, it could be, a ground ball to the right side and go on forever. It's so big at the polo grounds that the bullpen were actually on the field in right center and left center. So, right. uh, in fact, uh, Joey Amalfitano, the 
former teammate of Mays in 54 and later became a coach and, and manager. You know, he said, and, you know, he was one of the closest guys to Willie's catch because he was warming up some pitchers in the bullpen. And, uh, and so he, you know, Joey's in the book quite a bit. Joey, Joey seems to be everywhere. He was the third base coach when Kirk Gibson hit his home run against Eckersley. He was the second to last hitter, I believe, when, when Sandy Koufax threw his, uh, you know, perfect game. And, uh, and he, he was the guy who gave Willie Mays his bat when Willie wanted to sit out because he was feeling ill the day he hit four home runs in Milwaukee. And Joey sits him down and said, listen, you know, how are you feeling? I, I said, oh, man, I was, McCovey and I were up all night uh, because I was, I, was, I was throwing up. We had a bad plate of ribs. And Joey says, here, try this bat. I said, what do you mean? I'm not playing. So just try this bat. So Willie goes up to VP and hits, you know, whack, whack, whack. Everything's out of the park. He says, okay, Elvin Dark, put my name back in the lineup. So that was the day he hit four home runs <laughs> in Milwaukee. But, uh, you know, some great stories, man. Great stories. John, I know we kept you longer than I said, but uh, just to kind of wrap up my, my portion, I remember seeing Willie at the end when he came back to New York with, with the Mets, uh, played in the 73 World Series. And uh, uh, now I don't remember it at the time. I was a little, you know, kind of a young kid, but they were saying Willie was kind of fumbling around center field. I don't remember that. Uh, was that true? And, and how did he feel about those last two years in New York? Yeah, well, you know, it, at 40 years old in 1971, and I remember this vividly because I'm – you know, probably 13 by then. So I cast the end of his career. And he was just fantastic at 40. He led the league at walks and on base percentage. He had 18 home runs, 23 out of 26 in stolen bases. Um, you know, just a fat, number three hitter on a team that won his division. And then following May, he gets traded to the Mets because he was making so much money, $165,000. Uh, Horace Stoneham couldn't afford it, apparently. So, Joan Payson, the Mets owner, uh, brought him back to New York, and Joan was a minority owner in the old New York Giants, so it, her mission was always to bring Willie back. And Willie had a decent year in 72, um, led, led the Mets in OBP, which is, you know, OBS, which is on base plus slugging. And, and, uh, but the following year, uh, you know, he was ready to shut it down, and Joan said, hey, just give us one more year. But now he's in 73, and that was his worst season. It's the first time in his life he went on the disabled list. This mm -hmm. is, the, you know, the, the epitome of durability, Willie Mays. He played 150 games, uh, 13 straight seasons, uh, you know, a record that just, you know, will, will not be broken. Much of that streak during the 154-game season. So, so Willie was never out of the lineup, but those last couple of years, uh, especially in 73, he wasn't. Uh, doing so well physically it was the ribs it was the knee and it was the shoulder that bothered him and he sat out pretty much all of september because of some broken ribs he suffered in montreal and then in the postseason he's suddenly playing a lot and and he you know wasn't used to the role but anyway um he started game one in oakland in the world series and uh went one for four and the the mets lost to the ace but game two is what everybody remembers and that was the game that went extra innings and Willie fell down uh, pursuing a ball and uh, you, you, some images of him at home plate arguing with the, with the umpire. But I, so I, I kind of dug deep into that game and that entire World Series, tried to talk to as many people as I could on the Mets and the, and the A's. And I came away thinking, well, you know what? I think Willie might have gotten an unfair rap because I'm talking to Reggie Jackson, who played center field for Oakland, by the way, in that right. World Series. And he said that was the most brutal son 
he's ever played. And, we, you know, Willie hadn't played center field for weeks. And he went in to pinch run. And then he goes out to center field. He thought he was going out to right field. And they moved him over. So there's a little uh, miscommunication with Yogi Berra. So anyway, sure enough, first ball comes to him. It was, you know, he tried a shoestring catch, missed it, and fell down. And, you know, if he did that at 25, nobody would ever remember it. But he did this in his final year. So everyone says, oh, you know, don't be like Willie Mays. Don't wait too long before you retire retire you know on top you know and all this stuff right but and, and then the other image i talked about home plate you know arguing with the on his knees arguing with the uh, augie donatelli the umpire well that wasn't because he struck out or, or uh, had a bud harrelson, it was right? because it was bud harrelson yeah. he was defending his teammate because uh because of a bad call at the plate ray Fossey he was safe back, but he called him out <laughs> he was safe yeah, he was safe see yeah. you know yeah and uh Anyway, so I, I, all these A's said, hey, man, you know, Ricky Henderson played till he was 45, 46 in independent leagues. And, and, you know, he wore number 24 for Willie Mays. You know, he told me, he said, hey, you, you can't knock a guy for wanting to play longer, uh, you know, than his, than, than his prime. But uh, so anyway, some great stories, all, you know, and, and the Mets included. You know, he had a great time in New York. Didn't want to get traded, but once he did, he realized, hey, you know, this is, a great opportunity, and then Joan gave him like a ten-year personal service contract to hang around uh, longer in New York, and he, you know, he loved doing that. But now he works for the Giants. He's got a lifetime contract, and he's perfectly content doing what he's doing now. Uh, just right. waiting for this uh, sheltering to end, so he can go out and enjoy some baseball again, yeah. like we all are. Don, John, you so mentioned uh, my last question and last point is: How long did it take you? And how did you decide to make it into the 24 segments matching his number? How long did it take you to put this all together? Well, great question, because I asked him 15 years ago um, about a book project. And the first thing he said, and you know, this is you know, after years of building trust with the man, because, you know, covering the Giants, national baseball writer, I see, I see him a lot in the clubhouse, write a lot about him, and, uh, you know, he was willing to, pick up the phone and answer my questions, you know, knowing that I've written about him a lot. So there must've been some trust there and got a little uh, close. And I asked him 15 years ago about a book project and he said, well, I'd like to see this book in classrooms. And, and that's why we kind of went the inspirational route with the, with the life lessons, not just the life stories. Um, but maybe not until the very end, uh, my editor and good friend, Kurt Aguilar actually came up with the title. We were, we were just battling. So, okay, now what do we call it? And then he said, 24. I said, Oh, why didn't we come up with that 15 years ago? Because it's so perfect. Uh, we, we had about that many chapters and every chapter has a life lesson leading into the chapter and the iconic number. I mean, my God, it's the giants play at 24 Willie Mays Plaza. And, and, uh, and like I said, Ricky wore 24 because of him. Ken Griffey wore 24 because of Ricky. And, uh, Rick Barry, the basketball player who grew up in New Jersey, okay. wore, wore uh, 24 because of Willie because uh, he used to see him at the polo grounds all the time. And, uh, you know, on and on and on, all these great players who looked up to him. And, you know, around these parts, 24 is, uh, is a big part of uh, – and it, like I always have to have like a, a password with 24 in it or – a phone number with 24 in it. And, and I'm not the only one growing up here. You know, you, you idolize that man and, you know, you wanted to be 24 as, as a, as a kid growing up. But, uh, that's, that's the story, man. And it's, uh, it, it was a privilege and an honor to hang out with Willie for so long. We spent more than 20, more than a hundred hours together on the project. We did the math. And we figured it out and, uh, interviewed more than 200 people for the sake of the book. And, 
presidents and artists and musicians, not just Hall of Famers and Negro Leaguers and childhood buddies. So, well, John, I look forward to reading, uh, reading it and then summation from my standpoint. We'll let Doug close it out. Uh, one of the most interesting half hours that uh, we've ever spent in one of these interviews. So I thank you so much for not only your information, uh, but the way we were able to put this all together and, and you were able to sort of give us answers maybe we didn't even know. Thank you so much. Wow. Well, that was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Was, thank you, John. St. Martin's Press is where you can uh, get the book and all the stores, obviously. We'll put a link on our website. But, uh, John, pleasure talking to you. And uh, Willie's doing okay health-wise. I know he's 89, but relatively well. Yeah, he is, uh, actually. Uh, you know, I've been over at his house three or four times since the book came out. He's really engaged in the process, and uh, he's gotten a big kick out of the book and the audio book. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a great thing. Yeah. John, pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. John Shea joining us, and uh, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid is the uh, full title. And, uh, John, uh, always great to talk baseball, but particularly about Willie. I know you saw him more than I had to see him, but uh, if you back, went back to the polo grounds, you have some real memories of him. Yeah, I'll tell you. It was, uh, I, I mean, I remember that big word sketch like it was yesterday, and, and uh, uh, that really set the tone for the entire World Series. And, uh, you know, we talk about Dusty Rhodes, and he had a couple of home runs, not just one. He had a couple of big home runs in that World Series. And uh, as I say, I don't think any of them went, you know, much more than uh, maybe 300, I don't know, 267 feet or whatever it was. And, uh, uh, but it was a very interesting World Series to see the best pitching staff uh, at that particular time, I think, ever put together between the bullpen and the starters. And they just weren't able to beat the Giants. The Giants just had everything going their way. And, uh, and pulled it out with no difficulty. Yeah, great, great memories, and great, uh, of course, one of the all-time great. I think the best uh, I've ever seen, obviously, I think you probably think the same, Don, uh, greatest uh, all-around player of all time, right? Nobody ever uh, really came close to having all the tools. Well, he certainly had it all, no question about that. He had the ability to steal, he had a great arm, he had a great jump on the ball defensively, great hitter, great long ball hitter, great, I mean, you couldn't ask for uh, much more than that. That'll wrap it up for uh, this edition. Don, uh, always great talking with you, and uh, we'll do it again real soon. Probably not a heck of a lot to talk about uh, baseball-wise. We'll see how it goes, but uh, at least we got to go back in the memory file a little bit. You got it, partner. Thanks for listening, everybody.